Okay, so, you know, Ronnie, I want to say just at the top today, I don't think it's a goal uh, to be a household name, but I do think that being a household name carries some value. Like, it, I, I would imagine that it's uh, that, you know, there are many times that I walk into a restaurant and I think, man, I'd like to be Norm from Cheers, like at this place. Everybody um, knows your name. And we're, yeah, we're everyone. And, and so... Um, that's my weirdly awkward intro and segue into to our guests. So welcome to to Group Thinkers, where we have Norm and Norm uh, in some ways. No, but welcome to this episode of Group Thinkers, the podcast from RKD Group, where we don't encourage groupthink, but we encourage really good thinking, advanced thinking. And so I'm your host, Justin McCord. Got Ronnie Richard with me, and on today's episode, we do have uh, what I would contend are two household names in the nonprofit marketing space. So Norm and Norm, uh, as we may may think of it. But uh, we've got Beth Cantor and Allison Fine, and uh, we're here to talk about digital advancement as we are in this current season uh, of Group Thinkers. But more specifically, we're here to talk about digital advancement through the lens of their new book which is the, the smart nonprofit staying human-centered in an age of automation. So, um, Allison and Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Justin and Ronnie. It's nice to be here. Yeah, great to be here, Ronnie and Justin. Yeah, we're, we're excited for our chat today. And, and where I want to lead off is uh, just like the, the cats sitting around the bar at Cheers uh, or in any other relationship, uh, relationships take work and they're, uh, they're nuanced. And I'm curious about the, the working relationship, uh, and journey for the two of you. This is not your first book. And so I, I would love Allison, if you would maybe lead off and tell us about the journey, uh, of both you and Beth collaborating originally, and then what led you to this second book? Uh, and that process of working together. That's a lovely way to start, Justin. Thank you. We have been called the Lennon and McCartney of the nonprofit <laughs> space, but our collaboration actually is much longer than the Beatles. And I know that because my husband is a Beatleologist. So I wrote my first book called Momentum about um, digital tech and social change. It came out in 2006. And Beth was the very first blogger to review it. And we didn't know each other uh, when she posted the review, but then quickly got to know each other and began to work together uh, so, because we were both so early on in the space. And it was clear that we had a very nice way of being together. And we have very, very different strengths. I think, you know, Beth is very strategic and very practical and understands the technology in ways that I don't necessarily do. And I get um, a strategy and leadership and I would float off into the air, Justin, if she didn't keep me uh, anchored to it. So we wrote a few papers together and then we wrote the network nonprofit in 2010. And then a few years ago, the Gates Foundation asked us to take a look at the ways that AI and other smart tech were opening up generosity and fundraising and giving. And it occurred to us that what we're calling smart tech, which we'll talk more about, was it exactly where the place where social media was 10 years earlier when we had written the network nonprofit. And it is the next chapter 
And we thought, why don't we explain this uh, again? And what we know for sure, having worked together for over 15 years, the one thing we know, without a doubt, Justin, is both of our work is better when we work together. <laughs> Boy, that does feel Lennon and McCartney-ish. <laughs> uh, without Ono. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's uh, thank you for that. That's very that's very well said. And and uh, one of the things I hope we accomplish on this episode in our conversation today is to make the idea of AI less scary. Yeah, uh, because I do think that it feels unapproachable in some ways. And so, you know, we're hopeful that through our conversation and again, thinking about digital advancement, that we can make uh, smart tech less scary, more approachable for our listening audience. And so as we've we've put together a series of episodes all around digital advancement, and, and I'll tell you both, the through line and theme that we've felt is that it's, uh, it's one step in front of another. Uh, we, you know, we think a lot about the, uh, the ideas from the uh, the Bill Murray movie, What About Bob? That it's just like baby steps, right? Mm -hmm. That it's just one thing, one step at a time that you don't have to leap all the way to the end of being advanced as it were. And we have seen AI and automation play a, a very significant growing role. And so can, can you Beth tell us at a high level what nonprofits can do with this technology? Like if we're taking baby steps, but we're introducing AI, connect those two things for us. Sure, great question, Justin. So just to step back for a moment, um, let's define smart tech. Um, and in the book, we describe it as advanced digital technologies. and they, that identify patterns and they use something called algorithms. And that's kind of a scary word, but they're just basically mathematical equations that sweep through a lot of data and either uh, analyze it to solve a problem or to trigger a uh, task, um, such as cutting and pasting information from one document to another, just as an example. So basically they're, they're recipes or uh, recipes of uh, mathematical equations. And it takes a lot of work to make them work well. And, uh, and they need to be tested and cultivated. And the other piece of this is that uh, the algorithms eat data <laughs> for graphics, <laughs> right? Lots of data. And Allison's really fond of saying library of Congress size uh, data sets. So, um, so those are the components of what makes up smart tech. But what it does is that it's really making decisions for us instead of by us. You know, it's, it's not digitization that we're talking about. It's really, um, uh, you know, decision making. And I'll give you a quick accessible example. I, you know, I had a car problem and I had to rent a car and I had a really old car that wasn't a smart car. And I was back and it had one of those camera things, you know, in it. I don't know if you're familiar with those. And I was backing up and there was like um, a... So, uh, uh, it had rained and there were some water drops in the camera and it was interpreted by the algorithm or the computer visioning as something was in the way and it slammed on the brakes. And I'm like, what? And I couldn't figure out what, what's happening here. So it was actually making the decision for me. I mean, there was a default setting in the, the car that I didn't know that was set, but you know, there wasn't a manual override. 
And so, and that also illustrates another point with this technology is that there always needs to be kind of human input. It's not that the, the, the smart tech is going to take over for us or eliminate jobs. It, we're really going to be co-piloting, <laughs> co-botting is the term we use. And what that takes is a really a, a good understanding of, of what the technology can do. And, um, and, and, and that starts with uh, going slowly, right? We're in the last phase of digital technology, you know, social media, it was like fast, 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 you know, jump in the water, experiment, scale it fast, fail fast. But this, we have to be a lot more careful. And um, Allison's really great at talking about why we need to be more careful, but it's a more reflective, knowledgeable and, and thoughtful um, approach. And, and you mentioned, Allison, uh, you know, you've both mentioned that this is, there's some level of like efficiency some level there's there's so much of this that comes back to being efficient uh that you know because the smart tech eats data uh you know that you get the picture of pac-man and that it's that you can turn that towards certain applications and tasks or functions as a someone at a nonprofit to handle certain things for you what are those things like where where does this come into play especially in this great new digital first frontier where do where where are the best places for this to come into play so the reason why we're having this conversation today justin is because ai and other smart tech is at what we call the heel of the hockey stick of adoption, right? So it got developed, 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 built, and then whoosh, all of a sudden, adoption goes straight up in the air because the technology became much more powerful and much less expensive at exactly the same time. And we've seen this in other you know, tech eras. So in a minute, what feels like a minute, organizations can use the kind of technology that only NASA had access to three, four years ago. And it is what we call an equal opportunity disruptor. Smart tech is going to be embedded in every functional area of an organization. Development, HR, comms, direct services, everywhere. And what makes it especially challenging for organizations, uh, Justin, is that it's invisible, right? You can't see smart tech at work. It's built into, say, the HR product that's screening resumes, right? It's powering that in invisible ways and selecting some people and and excluding other people, right? Or it is uh, helping staff people fill out their expense reports automatically in real time and the same with budgeting. Or it's, you know, going through enormous data sets and identifying prospective uh, donors, right? It is everywhere. And that's why it's so important that the C-suite leans in with smart tech and, 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 and takes charge of an organization getting its arms around what this stuff is and when and how we're going to use it. We, we say it's hot sauce, it's not ketchup, right? You're going to use it sparingly. You're going to use it strategically and wisely. And that can only come from the C-suite in figuring out how and when to do that. So interesting, and especially because when you reflect on, let's say, the last 15 years of digital and tech in the nonprofit space, there is uh, the shiny object syndrome sometimes originates out of the C-suite. Yes. Oh, yes. we have to do this of 
ramping yes. up social media and they don't have any idea what it right. means. Or we've got right. to do we'll this. the chatbot. Everybody's got yeah. a chatbot. Go right. get one. <laughs> we need an NFT now. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We're going to have an NFT fundraiser. We don't know what that means, but everybody else is doing it. <laughs> and we're going to get rich from it. <laughs> we got someone on our board that's at a big tech company mm -hmm. and so they're selling us that we need yeah. this so so how so how does the c-suite how do we make them aware of the opportunity and then empower them to apply the right resources so that you know as you said hr can better use these things or mm -hmm. communications or mm -hmm. or marketing or even interdepartmentally within an organization sure. to break down some of those mm -hmm. silos how do we best arm the c-suite so, you know, that's a really great question. I'm going to start and Allison will, of course, make it better like she always does. So, you know, my thinking about this, you know, I've been reflecting on this and and because of the pandemic has been, a you know, an equal opportunity um, disruptor too. And it's almost been like a disruptive technology because it's affected everybody and the way we work, right? And we've been living through this, you know, fast paced, pivot to you know becoming distributed remote teams and trying to figure out you know how to deliver our programs digitally you know many nonprofits that i know kind of advanced in their digital transformation a whole decade's worth you know and in, in a matter of a month and you know way back in march 2020 and and we did it you know because we had to <laughs> Um, it was a matter of um, health and safety and life and death, given COVID. And, and there was a lot of stress in that initial uh, uh, shift. We started to settle in, you know, and as we had the sort of COVID whiplash of, hey, we're going, we got vaccinated. We can go back into the office. Oh, no, we can't. Oh, we're going to have to go back in hybrid. Oh, no, we can't. But now we're kind of like, well, yeah, we have to go back into hybrid. And now here oh, I got used to all this flexibility <laughs> of work. And we, you know, it's, this is a much better way to work uh, for some people, not all. So we have all of this disruption going on in the workplace. And, and I think this is the time, and I think a leadership challenge now is kind of like the pacing, okay? So maybe before the pandemic, the pacing could be, yeah, let's get all those shiny objects. Let's, let's be at the cutting edge, you know? But now I think we have to do a great reset. And I think we need to really think about like, what are the ways that we can use technology to, to give our people space, right? And, and to really focus on a culture of well-being, to reconnect social capital in the office, to reconnect with our, with, you know, with the people we're working with. And that's where smart tech gives us this dividend of time that we talk about in the book, because you know, there is the efficiency piece, you know, there's that piece. And when I say efficiency, it's killing off that soul sucking, repetitive, exhausting, horrible cut and paste ugh, work, you know, where, you know, I'll just say one word, shared hard drive, <laughs> you know, try, you know, if you want to get something done, you have to spend an hour trying to figure out where's that information and then cutting and pasting it. And like, I mean, that's exhausting. And it, it's, it's an HR, it's in fundraising, it's program delivery. So smart tech can get, can cut a lot of that away, right? And that opens up time, time to really develop relationships with donors, to actually, if you're in the office, to breathe, maybe to rethink, you know, things like a four-day work week, right? That's what everybody's asking for, and um, more flexibility at work. So I think this is the great opportunity, and 
and if we can make that shift, it's not going to be easy because <laughs> it's it's more about than just the technology, right? It's it's culture, it's workflows, it's and everybody's put, nobody has the answer yet. If we can get to that spot, we can get better in, impact. I think we can um, stop the leaky bucket problem with donors, and we can stop. We have a leaky bucket problem right now with staff with the great resignation, and then if we can get beyond that. Then the next step is this, our work changes for the better. Our work becomes more meaningful because it's it, it's more cognitively exciting. It's We're closer to like why we got into this work. And I think this can have extraordinarily incredible, uh, maybe a, a renaissance for the nonprofit sector, if you will. I mean, but that's like, I'm getting to be like Allison now. <laughs> She's teaching me to, like, to be up on the balcony and see the, the, the great things. So no, I'm gonna I, toss, toss it over to Allison. Yeah, Allison, I, here's the thing is that I, I really, I, I'm so fascinated with the idea of the leaky bucket that yeah. we've talked about. And so uh, honing in on, on that aspect and specifically, as this applies to fundraising, and and just as as you're you're going there, let me tell you that you know as a uh, a, a professional services company, a marketing company, there are different scopes of relationships, and I'll tell you that there are some relationships that we have to where we've even evaluated how to fix that own leaky bucket, so that as a partner, that we're not using resources for the mundane. Right. But that so that you do make space for critical thinking, strategic thinking, elevated thinking, and that you find ways to either enable technology or other options to take care of the mundane. So that makes yeah. sense in my mind. Yeah. Where I want to connect it, where I'm hoping you can help is uh, how does this apply directly into fundraising? Because the benefits across the organization are there. But what about helping increase our net revenue as an organization? Uh, I love this topic, but let me just pause for half a second, Justin, and just say Beth's answer before was magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. See how lucky I am to be her partner. Yeah. You can't be her partner because I am. So <laughs> no, and I'm her partner. <laughs> and now, 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 listen to Al. Now, wait for it. Allison's <laughs> going to make it better. <laughs> I guess this is if we're rounding out the Beatles, I yeah. Ronnie, we have to figure out if you're Ringo or I'm yeah. Ringo. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. who's you know who's George? So we'll or who's, we'll, or who's John? Yeah, who's we'll John? Figure that out. We'll sort it out. Are you uh, are you John or or Paul? So we've never really discussed that. So we're just going to leave that open ended. Okay. Well, 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 yeah, we'll discuss we that. Change every day too. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. When we first started to look at uh, AI for fundraising, Justin, under that you know um, project with the Gates Foundation, when we began to talk to uh, the C-suite about the possibility that you could have smart tech do research on prospects that was taking hours and hours of development team time and do it literally in minutes, you could see the wheels turning of, ooh, I get to cut headcount right? Automatically, we can have a, we can move our development, cut our development team from eight people to four using smart tech, right? And the question back to them, I always have is, oh, you think your fundraising is good. <laughs> the reality is your fundraising sucks. And let me tell you why. Because you have this leaky bucket. You get 10 donors in year one, 
and only two of those donors are going to be with you in year two, right? And then by year five, you're down to maybe one of those donors. And because of that, you start to frantically send out the emails and create this transactional fundraising, you know, uh, a program that is racing through donors. It feels crappy to people on the outside. We're treated like ATM machines. Organizations never ever ask us how it feels to be a donor. You, the the thank yous are just rote things, you know. That I can't tell you how often I hear from donors of. I didn't feel thanked. Even if you technically got that stupid thank you email, you don't feel thanked, right? And this keeps happening over and over again. And, and it's just a, uh, a sprint, you know, to keep filling up that empty bucket, that leaky bucket. So now we have technology that can take that 25% of time spent on either research and or administrative things. And smart tech can find prospects. Smart tech can... Um, draft communications with donors, right? The, the Rainforest Action Network used smart tech to communicate with brand new donors in, using stories that would appeal directly to them, right? To, to, to um, cultivate donors directly and individually using smart tech and increased the amount of donors that went to become monthly donors, the holy grail of fundraising, by eight times what they usually did, right? So you can use smart tech to do all of that work and free up your development staff to build relationships, cultivate donors, ask them questions, see how they feel, find out stories. Why is this cause meaningful to you? Why is it important to your life? What would it take for you to be an ambassador for us to other people in your networks, right? All of the human work that could help you pivot from being transactional to relational. That's what the leaky bucket was. And that's what it could become this garden of Eden of abundance if we could use the tech well. But it requires leadership willing to make that pivot from what they've known forever in that transactional world to a deeply relational model. Allison, I really love that. You know, it kind of takes me back to the title of your book about staying human centered in an automated world. You mentioned the C-suite and the decision they have to make. All these great things that both you and Beth are talking about, ultimately this all comes down to being rooted in data, right? So you have to have good data, clean data, effective data to make this work. And we've seen this with so many nonprofits we work with where data can be a little bit of a problem. Clean data is not always the best in the nonprofit space. Uh, according to Salesforce, only 76 or 76% of nonprofits lack even a data strategy. So knowing all that, uh, Beth, I'll throw this question to you. How do we get started getting the data in a right place to begin this push? You know, that's a Really great question, Ronnie. And I'm going to back up just a moment and I'm, I'm going to start lead with, you said everything is rooted in data. I want to say everything is rooted in people and that we have to, <laughs> we have to be human centered first before we get to the data because the data maybe is at the second stage. So we really have to sort of think through like, what's the problem we're going to solve? Um, what's that exquisite pain point that we want to address, right? And it, and it can't be just us, the fundraisers or the staff sitting in a conference room, 
saying this is the problem and then just, you know, then running off and collecting data and doing all the data management things we need to do. We really need to go out there and we need to use like design thinking methods and we need to like interview those end users, talk to the donors and really understand the problem from their point of view and maybe and maybe be open <laughs> to knowing that, well, maybe we didn't define this quite right. Maybe we need to think about it in a different way. I mean, that's step one. And, and step two, um, before we get to the data, is um, we really have to lay out a, a good uh, path, or some people use the term customer journey, donor journey. And when we're thinking about smart tech, you know, what is the what is the stuff that the humans are going to do and that they do well? And what what is the stuff we're going to delegate to the machines? And always make sure that the humans are in charge. And that also takes thought, it takes uh, concept testing, it, it takes conversations, it takes you know an element of, of learning about what the tech can do and what it shouldn't do, looking at other examples. And then, <laughs> then we get to this point where we can start to think about the data. And when we think about the data, there's gonna be a couple of different ways to think about it. There's the data that, that the nonprofits have, and there's a whole ladder of, um, uh, I, I, what's the word I want? A ladder of like data, um, uh, data wellness, <laughs> for lack of a better word. You know, it has to be accurate. It has to be complete. Um, and a lot of nonprofits just don't have the capacity in house. They don't have a data manager, right? Somebody who's making sure that's being collected and uh, cared for. And then there's another skill. Once you've collected it, you know that's great, but it has to be uh, turned into some insights. And that's like data scientist skills. And many nonprofits just don't have the resources to have that kind of expertise uh, in house. So here they're maybe relying on bringing in, um, you know, data scientists, volunteers, or maybe there's collaborations with other organizations. But and or a lot of organizations are going to be relying on the vendors who will be collecting data or co-joining data that the nonprofit has. And here is where I'm going to shift it over to Allison to sort of take up the points about, you know, you know, responsible use of data and ethical use of data. Um, so there are cautions about using smart tech. And again, this is why we need the C-suite um, knowledgeable and comfortable. Uh, in this uh, arena. And uh, one is that uh, we, will, we will be swimming in even larger oceans of data, Ronnie, than we have been in the digital tech we've known uh, to date, right? We're talking about magnitudes of hundreds of the amounts of, of data that will be available to people. And we need nonprofit organizations to raise the bar on the ethical use of data for privacy concerns, right? We think that nonprofits are perfectly positioned to adapt, adopt the, um, uh, the data privacy rules of the, of the European Union, GDPR, things like the right to be forgotten. See, allowing somebody to unsubscribe from your newsletter is not the same as the right to be forgotten, the right to to you know, get rid of their uh, information. And nonprofits have followed the general standards of the commercial sector, which is to do the least possible protection of privacy of individuals. And we think they ought to do the most uh, and become a model for how to do this. In addition, there are really serious issues around bias built into smart tech um, products and processes that people really need to be aware of. 
So for instance, if you begin to use smart tech to screen people for jobs or services, there are two places where gender and racial bias may have been built uh, into that system. One is that programmers are actually people and they build their own assumptions and biases into uh, products. And the second is, again, because it does take Library of Congress-sized data sets to train smart tech algorithms, those historic data sets are generally biased as well. You put those two pieces together uh, into a commercial product and whatever you're pulling off the shelf probably has some bias built into it and you can't get the bias out. All you can do is be aware of it and try to mitigate it in your efforts. This is where the knowledge piece comes in. You need to be asking hard questions of vendors. Right, what are the assumptions that went into this product? How was it tested for bias? Now, if you're working with a vendor that says, uh, this is proprietary uh, code and we can't let you peek under the hood, then I say you tell them to go uh, take a hike. It would be just in like going to a bakery and asking for a carrot cake, having them hand it to you, you saying, uh, I have some allergies. Do you know I have an egg allergy? Are there eggs in here? And they're saying, Recipe is secret, we can't tell you. <laughs> That's an unacceptable answer. So we really need people to understand where and how uh, there can be problems in using uh, the tech and how, how to be responsible stewards of it. I, I don't think it's, it, it's not cliche, but it is look before you leap. Like the, everything that you mentioned there about the cautionary tales is, uh, Allison, don't get caught up in the idea of this is, either cool or that this is something yeah. that we should chase because we should chase it. Really think through your use cases and your needs as an organization prior to committing, diverting, or leveraging resources towards it. Well, and let, and let me just add, Justin, there is a tendency people have of looking at smart tech and bots and thinking that they can't be biased because they are these computer systems. The opening story in our book is about uh, an assessment tool used by social workers to provide uh, help to people who are at risk of homelessness. The paper tool got turned into an automated computer uh, system was used by thousands and thousands of organizations around the world for almost 10 years and turned out to be deeply racially biased. But people were using this automated system on the screen and just went with it, even when the results didn't make sense to them. So we can't go on autopilot just because these um, systems are um, run by algorithms. Allison, are, is, are there any organizations doing this really well right now? Or are we just, you mentioned the hockey stick earlier, are we, are we ahead of the, the spike? and it's coming or uh -huh. yep. you know are, are there any organizations that you can think of or beth yeah. saying to you that that you know hey they're they're kind of ahead of this curve and they're on it right now so they're yes. definitely great yeah. use cases ronnie i'll tell you about talking points and then beth can tell you about uh, a group called trevor project which is doing an amazing <laughs> job and you're so reading my mind <laughs> yeah 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 well we've been doing this a long time so uh People, there are people um, that are really beginning to integrate smart tech into their uh, everyday use, Ronnie. So Talking Points is an organization, a nonprofit based in the Bay Area, run by a, a woman named Hee Lin. And the exquisite pain point she was solving for 
uh, is the fact that teachers have difficulty communicating with parents for whom English is not their first language. Uh, and that turns out to be a key success point for kids in school is that communication link between parents and teachers. So he began to build a smart tech app that would uh, translate between teachers and parents in many, many languages. And they, they are deeply human centered. They had a pilot effort. They have people, human beings always overseeing the interpretation because it can be jargony um, and uh, building this system beginning in 2015 and improving it and improving it. And right now uh, it is translating 20 million conversations between parents and teachers. And it is an absolute game changer for those families that are using the technology. As the, uh, as the husband of an assistant principal, that absolutely boggles my mind because, you know, even in in public school settings, I completely understand where you're coming from and the power of using technology to help with that. Uh, Beth Allison mentioned an, another example. I think it's a little more on the the program delivery side, right? Uh, so yes. talk to us a little bit about uh, the Trevor Project and how they're using smart tech. Sure. So, um, so I don't know if your audience is familiar with the Trevor Project. They provide uh, crisis counseling to LGBTQ plus people, uh, young people uh, often that are in crisis, um, that are in danger of perhaps suicide, harming themselves, um, and other issues. Uh, and it and it's been actually um, since the pandemic, this has really escalated. There, uh, I just saw an article the other day in the New York Times about the the increase and uh, mental health issues of, of teens and young people has just gone through the roof. Um, so that, that is a bit, they do important, important work. And, um, and, and so as you can imagine, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the demand for their services has just gone through the roof. And, uh, and it was even like that before the pandemic. Uh, and to deliver the counseling service, counselors have to be trained. Um, it's you know, and they use actually volunteers that can be trained. But it's a very rigorous kind of approach. It's very human centered. It's very empathetic. And so they had this problem where they had this very specific kind of counseling service that needed to be delivered, but they didn't have enough people or the, the humans to deliver it, right? And so one could say, oh, well, let's just use chatbots and have them replace the counselors on the front line. No, <laughs> you know, this is a human-centered task. So as they kind of went through that first step of, you know, of, of um, defining that exquisite pain point and talking to end users and thinking about this, bringing in technical advisors, I believe that they were a winner of the, the Google AI for Good um, challenge. So they had a lot of uh, technical partners who were working with them, but in this very human-centered uh, way, they decided that, well, we could use a chatbot, um, and they named it Riley, but we're going, and we're going to use a very sophisticated chatbot that can actually learn from interacting, but we're going to make sure it's responsible, and we're going to use, only expose it in very controlled training simulations with uh, counselors so that they can be trained uh, more flexibly 
which means that um, this could start to scale the number of counselors that could be trained without adding more staff. And their staff jobs um, kind of shifted from training delivery to more oversight and quality control of, uh, of the counseling. So I think this is a really great example of like thinking through that problem, being human-centered and, um, and responsible use, which I think is so, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> and this is, the, you know, and this is, you know, if you think about it, just think about like, you know, in the past 10 years, how when nonprofits take on a tech problem, a tech transformation, digital transformation project, I mean, it's such a different approach, you know, than kind of let's run and like do it <laughs> at scale. At scale. You know, yeah. you know you, we can't get to scale really fast <laughs> with this. We have to go slowly to go fast. Right. Yeah, we don't so have much time. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the problem is that we don't have much time, but we need to go slow. And, and in fact, uh, you know, it, it makes me think of one of our, our colleagues who, who helps oversee our data practice and, uh, and words that I've heard them use, which is um, we're intentionally going to move slow on this versus moving or move too slow versus move too fast, because we want to make sure that we are staying human centered in our approach. And we do strongly, uh, we believe strongly that, you know, no matter what aspect of the nonprofit marketing continuum you're on, that, uh, that you are an analyst, that we are all stewards of data at this point. But to the, the great point that you made throughout the conversation today, both of you and through the book itself, that you have to stay human centered, that yeah. first and foremost, starting there. Uh, Beth, Allison, we truly appreciate uh, your time and joining us today. The book is called The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Age of Automation. It's available on Amazon and through other places. Uh, Beth and Allison, you can find all sorts of great content that they've put out across the Chronicle Philanthropy and on their own blogs and just do a simple Google search on either of their name. And, and, uh, and we'll leave the Lennon-McCarthy debate to the listeners, okay? But Ronnie, I'm claiming Ringo. So just so you know. Well, I was going to claim Ringo because I've already got two R's in my name. So if I thought I, I just get that one. Okay, that's fine. We'll, uh, Beth, we'll talk about it. Well, yeah, we'll talk about it. Beth, Allison, thank you all for, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. So you can check out other episodes of Group Thinkers wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to uh, hit up the Group Thinkers blog on rkdgroup.com, where we're tracking through and continuing conversations on digital advancement and uh, and honestly, how to uh, to take one step forward in 2022. So thanks for checking out this episode. We will see you later. See you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but it's the marketing efforts behind Group Thinkers. Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.